Acts chapter 7, and the sermon text is 54 through 60 for the verses, but we will read verses 51 through 53 because these are the closing words of Stephen's message when he was cut short, and this is important to understand why they reacted the way that they did. So let's read Acts 7 beginning in verse 51. This is the living and abiding word of God. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, And ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is the very word of God. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Let us uh, seek our God in prayer. Our God and Father, we come uh, thankful to hear your word today. We know that it is a, a gift from you that you have given us, your inspired word for our benefit. So we ask that you would teach us by the ministry of the Spirit within us uh, that we would come away transformed, uh, changed into the likeness of Jesus as we read these words and consider them together. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, I don't know if you can uh, relate to this, perhaps, but there are times, I think, where the Lord uh, impresses upon us a particular Bible verse for years at a time, or maybe a series of Bible verses. There's certain passages that sort of stick in your mind Uh, And they keep coming back as sort of an interpretive lens for your life and something that even shapes your prayers. And one of those verses I I see as very relevant for what's happening in our passage today is 2 Timothy 1, verse 7. I've mentioned this a few times, which is reflective of the fact that I've been thinking about it for a long time. And in 2 Timothy 1, verse 7, Paul speaking to Timothy says this, that God has not given us a spirit of fear but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Uh, We talk about this verse quite a bit and pray for it as we uh, minister, and it's very important for us because what it describes is this unique, wonderful combination of graces that God gives to us to do the work that he's called us to do. They're very needful. We need all three of these things. We need the power of God. We need love. 
We need a sound mind or self-control as it's rendered in some of the translations. And certainly, if we want an example of what all these three things look like when brought together, Stephen is a wonderful example of that for us. You see the power of God working through Stephen as he confronts these persecutors as he preaches the truth and it's so powerful that no one can resist what he's saying they can't refute him he's working miracles as well through his ministry you see his love when he desires that God would forgive those who are killing him that is the love of Christ and Stephen has this sound mind to understand and speak the truth and not be shaken by what he is facing. He has all of these graces brought together when he is facing tremendous opposition. Stephen is, of course, the first dying martyr of the New Testament age. Uh, He is the first one that dies for the Lord Jesus in the book of Acts, though not the last one. And as he does so, he becomes a, an example of what it means to be a faithful witness. That's what the word martyr means, of course, is a witness. Stephen is a faithful witness by not only speaking faithfully, speaking the truth, but he's also a faithful witness because he is like Christ. And this is one of the most powerful things about Christian witness is when we not only speak the truth, but when Christ works within us to make us like him, make us like the one that we are representing to others. That is one of the most powerful aspects of Christian witness that God enables us to do. And so my aim today in this message is to set forth what it means to be a faithful witness. What does it look like uh, to be a faithful witness for Christ? And though we may not face the particular circumstances Stephen did, we will most certainly face difficulty and opposition in the Christian life. That's basic. Everybody gets signed up for that. Uh, And you will need these combination of graces from the Holy Spirit to be able to do that faithfully. Our message and our passage is uh, filled with dramatic contrast. Did you sense the contrast as we read it? How there's Stephen on one hand and then there's his persecutors and they could not be further apart from one another in terms of what they are like. It is the contrast of being filled with the spirit, like Stephen, or being filled with rage and malice such that you gnash your teeth in anger. That's the, they're so far apart from each other. It is the contrast of a forgiving heart versus extreme hatred and malice. It is a contrast of seeing the glory of God and being utterly blind and deaf to the truth, totally separate from one another. Now, as we think about those contrasts, I think those contrasts are drawn out for us for us to consider what it looks like to be with Christ and what it looks like to be against him. And you have to take sides in this matter. You cannot be a perpetual fence dweller when it comes to the claims of Christ. I know many people try to sit on the fence as long as possible. They'll use the, uh, the escape hatch of agnosticism. I just don't know. You have to answer these questions because they have eternal consequences for you. 
It really matters where you stand. Do you stand with Christ and for Christ and in Christ as redeemed by him? Or will you stand against him? There is no third option. This this account presses upon us. Am I with Stephen, who is with Christ? Or am I with these other persecutors? You might say, I would never hurt somebody. I would never stone somebody. I would never participate in such a violent, lawless act. There's plenty of other ways to persecute God's people and to reject Christ and to hate Christ. You don't have to throw a stone to hate Christ. And so this is not an abstract question for us because while we can be uh, thankful that we do not see these modern executions of Christians taking place in America, the reality is there is a conflict. There is a, a hostility against Christ, and there always will be for as long as the, the message of the gospel goes forth in the world. And you are going to have to stand with him or against him. And if you say that you do not stand with him, then you will be standing against him. So as we go into the, the passage today, we are going to be looking at these contrasts and then pressing that question uh, concerning the claims of what it means to be a faithful witness. And we begin with the hostility of this mob that reacts to Stephen's preaching. This doesn't really look like a uh, law-abiding justice-respecting courtroom for very long, does it? He's before these uh, rulers, which this should have been a very orderly proceeding with witnesses and responses and uh, orderly proceedings, but it very quickly devolves by the reality of the anger of his, his listeners. And so let's look at the reaction to Stephen. Verse 54 is how our text begins. It says, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. Now, do you remember in Acts chapter 2 the phrase that we read at the end of Peter's Pentecost sermon? What was the phrase? They were cut to the heart. Same, same words. You can be cut to the heart two different kinds of ways. You could be cut to the heart such that you were brought to faith and repentance in Christ, a total undoing of yourself. You can repent and turn to the Lord through a cutting of the heart. Or you could be extremely filled with anger and hatred against the message you've just heard. Either one is a cutting to the heart, but you get a different response depending on what the Holy Spirit is doing or not doing within that heart. They were so angry that they gnashed at him with their teeth. Gnashing of teeth is a description of the anger and rage that takes hold of someone. People that get really angry, they can clench their teeth, they can grind them together as an expression of that rage that's coming up from within them, and they begin to gnash and clench their teeth, grinding their teeth together with such rage. This is the the letting loose of anger from within. It is extreme anger. You'll actually find in the Psalms that the language of the gnashing of teeth is often described as being characteristic of the wicked, that they gnash their teeth against God's people. I have the references, I think, in the notes for you of those Psalms. In the gnashing of teeth, it's a very foreboding thing because we need to remember that we are told by our Lord Jesus that the 
the description given to eternal punishment in hell consists in the gnashing of teeth. It is a place of extreme rage. It is a place in which the anger and the rage and the malice against God never ceases. What a fearful thing to consider. Well, may it be that the gnashing of teeth that anybody has would only be a temporary thing that they repent of. Otherwise, it will be something that will be a reality for all eternity. Now, what is it that made them so angry? Why were they gnashing their teeth? What had Stephen said? Well, he called them stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears, that they always resisted the Holy Spirit. He says, you all come from a long line of prophet killers. And that was not a pleasant word for them, as true as it was. Was Stephen loving his hearers as he said this? Well, the answer, of course, is yes. Every word of this was true. He was guided by the Spirit to bring the hardest possible words to his hearers. That was exactly what they needed to hear. They needed to be cut to the heart. They needed to know that they were rejecting the Messiah. This was not spoken out of anger or frustration or personal hatred toward his hearers. These were true and loving words from Stephen. And so what we learn about this, I think an observation we could draw from this, brothers and sisters, is that faithful, loving preaching can often produce a very hostile reaction. And children, this is the first point in your notes. Number one, God's truth will offend people when they are not humble to receive God's truth. God's truth will offend people when they are not humble to receive God's truth. So we have to recognize that when, when the word of God is faithfully preached or when you faithfully share it with someone, you need to understand that you have different possible reactions. You will not always get a receptive reaction. As you probably well know, if you've shared the word with anybody, it doesn't always go well. And it is not because you have failed in your delivery. Now, there are ways to fail in the delivery of the gospel. I recognize that. We can fail to accurately teach it. Any one of us can fail to accurately communicate it. But what I'm saying is that when we do faithfully communicate it, it actually might be a sign of our faithfulness that it is rejected. It might be that they actually did get the message in the sense that they understood its implications and what it's saying to them about their hearts and their sinfulness and their need for a savior, which they did not like. And of course, we do not want to be unnecessarily offensive in the sense that we are obnoxious and unkind and unloving in our speech. There are ways in which we can fail in that regard, but recognize that the word of the gospel is either an aroma of life, Paul says, or it is an aroma of death to those who are perishing. And so there may be people that detest every word that you say. They will not want to hear it at all because you were truthful and faithful in what you said. And so we need to consider that and and recognize that this is par for the course. Uh, As I had said in previous messages about Stephen, it is par for the course. It is to be expected in the Christian life that you'll not only be slandered, but also that people will not like what you say and what you believe. Get used to it. 
And I encourage every one of us to abandon the aim of never offending anyone. I hope that's not your aim, because it's not possible to be a witness, faithful witness for Christ and make it your aim never to offend anyone. Uh, first of all, it's impossible anyway to not offend anyone. That's terrible life to be enslaved to people-pleasing, but it's very much impossible to do so and faithfully represent the claims of Christ. Christians are not to be people-pleasers, they are to be God-pleasers at all times. So these persecutors, they were filled with rage, they're gnashing their teeth, it's a very ugly picture. Now if you're Stephen, put yourself in his shoes for a moment, how would you react to all this? Would you have become fearful Would you have backed down? Would you have said, well, hold on, hold on, let me qualify what I said. Would you have tried to to lighten the message, the force of the message a little bit? Would you have done something to appease the crowd? And I ask those questions because on one hand we could say, well, I've never been in the situation that Stephen's been in. I don't know how I would react. And it's, it's fine to say that. It's appropriate to recognize. I don't know. I've never been there. Part of the answer lies in remembering that God gives us grace sufficient for the trials that we meet. And so if we get placed in the Stephen situation, God can give us the grace we need to be like Stephen. But I ask those questions because we may face less fearful circumstances where we don't do very well. And it's, a, it's an evidence of the ways in which we need God's grace to grow, to grow in courage, to grow in love to grow in in power in responding to the hostile reactions that we face. So Stephen, he does not not buckle under the pressure. He does not lighten the message. He doesn't say sorry for anything. He doesn't uh, try to find some people-pleasing route to fix the situation. Instead, Stephen, he's not even focused on all that's happening around him. He's not focused upon how mad they are and how how they're going to probably hurt him in a few minutes here. He sees the glory of God. Stephen's not focused on all the malice and the rage. It's the way that the, the, the text presents it is almost like he's not even aware of it. What a blessing that would be. You're, just, you're not even aware of all the rage and all the anger, and you're not aware of all these mad people and the demonic forces surrounding you. You're just looking at the glory of God. And I think this was God's gift to Stephen to enable him to see in such a way that he would see exactly what he needed to see to stand for Christ. Look at verse 55 and 56. He, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. People have often wondered, why was Jesus standing? He's always described as sitting at the right hand of God. Why would he do this? Well, there's different theories on it. We don't know for sure. Uh, One possibility is, is the idea that in the Old Testament, it would talk about how God would stand for judgment. It could be in the sense that that Jesus is saying, I'm very much engaged in what's happening with my servant right now. I'm going to stand up to pay attention, as it were. That's one possibility. It could be that Jesus is standing to receive Stephen, uh, kind of a going forward out to Stephen. We don't know for sure why, but no doubt this is what Stephen saw. This is what he describes as seen as a heavenly vision. 
I do believe it's describing something that he saw with his eyes. I think it's a miraculous ability to see through the sky, as it were, to see throughout above all the circumstances Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That was, I think, what the Spirit enabled him to do. And when you can see the glory of God in some measure, you know that that glory has to outshine everything else around it. If you can see God's glory, everything else would pale utterly in comparison. It would be as nothing when you see the glory of God. And that's what I think God did for Stephen. I think Stephen was blessed by this vision. He was given the ability to see something such that everything else was very insignificant to him. It's fascinating to me also that in the life of other Christians, there have been sometimes similar reports of visions. Uh, John Payton is one such example, and we've told many aspects of the story of John Payton because it's such a good example of the kinds of things that we see here in Acts. John Payton, a sacrificial missionary on the New Hebrides, ministering in the probably the most dangerous circumstances one could imagine when you have uh, pagan cannibal tribes killing each other left and right. You're in the middle of this trying to bring the gospel of peace to a people that know nothing of peace. And so in the midst of this, in one of these uh, episodes where Payton is facing facing hostility on both sides. He's going to be killed. He was almost killed many, many times. Surrounded by violent natives. And yet in the very midst of this, as he's about to be potentially killed, Peyton was given a vision in some manner of the very same kind of thing that Stephen saw. You'll see it in your notes there, the quote. He says, A killing stone thrown by one of the savages grazed poor old Abraham's cheek. And the dear soul gave such a look at me and then upwards as if to say, Missy, I was nearly away to Jesus. A club was also raised to follow the blow of the killing stone, but God baffled the aim. They encircled us in a deadly ring and one kept urging another to strike the first blow or fire the first shot. So he's surrounded by enemies and weapons. He says, my heart rose up to the Lord Jesus. I saw him watching all the scene. My peace came back to me like a wave from God. I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. The assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevail to strike us, not a spear leave the hand in which it was held vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow leave the bow or a killing stone the fingers without the permission of Jesus Christ." Whose is all power in heaven and on earth. He rules all nature, animate and inanimate, and restrains even the savages of the South Seas. In that awful hour, I saw his own words as if carved in letters of fire upon the clouds of heaven. Seek and ye shall find. Whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And then he says... I could understand how Stephen and John saw the glorified Savior as they gazed up through suffering and persecution to the heavenly throne. Well, this is very much like what Stephen saw by the grace of God. It was a gift. It was the ability to see something that you otherwise could not see. 
And it strengthened John Payton. It enabled him to realize Jesus is right here. He is with me. And he is sovereign over every single thing that is happening to me right now. Now we know that uh, as other servants of Christ have faced similar circumstances, that not everybody can report some miraculous vision like Stephen or John Payton did. We recognize that. And nevertheless, even if we don't see with our eyes or perceive in, in, with, with physical sight uh, the presence of Christ, we know his promise that he is with us until the end of the age. And we know that being able to perceive with the eyes of faith the glory of God will enable us to view the situation rightly that we're facing. When we are enamored with God's glory, when we behold God in everything that we're doing, when God is much bigger than all the circumstances that we're facing, then people and opposition and fearful circumstances, they really are of very little importance if our vision is attuned correctly. And kids, this is the second point in your notes. Number two, if we keep our eyes on God like Stephen did, people will appear quite small and we will not fear them. So we've got to keep our eyes on the Lord. He is so much bigger, so much greater than anything anyone can do. And if we don't have our, our spiritual vision attuned correctly, we will be far more fearful. We're going to tend to cower. We'll tend to back down when things get difficult because man is appearing big and God is appearing small, when, of course, the opposite is the reality. Now, we find other scriptural examples of this truth as it relates to the overcoming the fear of man by beholding God. And outside of miraculous examples like we see with the case of Stephen. I think of Hebrews 11 verse 27 describing the faith of Moses as he, as he forsook Egypt. As he left, it says in Hebrews 11 27, by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. The author of Hebrews isn't telling us that Moses saw with his actual physical eyes God. He's saying that God is invisible, but it was with eyes of faith that he saw the reality and the existence and the presence of God over all these things. And so one of the applications, I think, that we should clearly draw from this is that that God would grant us, we would ask that God would grant us to behold his glory, that we would see and understand and perceive and apprehend more of the gloriousness of our God and the weight of that, which will then shape our spiritual vision as we go about day to day. We will know how to think and what to do as we behold the glory of God. So we go on that this is what Stephen was beholding. Now, Stephen, he didn't keep this vision to himself. Now, the, the persecutors apparently could not see this for whatever reason. They, they did not have eyes to see what Stephen was seeing. But Stephen didn't keep it to himself. He told them, he says, look, uh, I, I am seeing the glory of God. I, I am seeing Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Why, why did Stephen tell them about this? Well, part of his aim, of course, was to convince them 
that Jesus is the Messiah who has risen from the dead that they need to turn to. And so he's saying, Jesus is, is real. I can see him with my own eyes, but they have no interest in what he has to say. As he says this in verse 57, it tells us that they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. This was the hatred of the message. This was, they, they so detested the truth that Stephen was delivering that it was like they literally plugged their ears. I don't know if Luke is telling us they actually pushed their fingers on their ears, but at the very least, they stopped up their ears from hearing. They did not want to even listen to the words of Stephen. And, and one of the ways you can ignore somebody is by shouting with a loud voice and running with them in rage. That was how they reacted. People who are suppressing God's truth and rebelling against it, they want to avoid hearing about the truth. It's a very annoying and painful reminder. Have you noticed in our day how this suppression of truth is playing out? There is a desire to keep any speech concerning God banished from our conversations. It is a very impolite thing to do to talk about the living God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. For many, it's a, it's a remarkable thing, but that suppression of truth actually comes across in the form of apparently what is now considered decency. This is now uh, proper manners is to engage in the suppression of truth and unrighteousness. I didn't know that that was uh, a proper behavior or manner. Actually, the scriptures would tell us it's quite the opposite. It's ungodly. It's evil. We live in a therapeutic culture today, and so people respond in different ways. They respond with therapeutic categories. And what I mean by therapeutic categories is that even to speak things that I disagree with can be harmful to me as a person. This is where we're at in our, our modern discourse now, is that People cannot even endure a differing opinion. It is uh, considered an act at times of violence against someone to speak a contrary opinion. And apparently the, the persecutors of Stephen seem to take it uh, violently as well. Uh, they, they seem to agree with that perspective that Stephen's speech was so inappropriate that it required an act of execution. Why do people do this? Well, people want to be shielded from having their consciences awakened to the truth. If you have worked hard to suppress the truth and unrighteousness, and you've worked hard to sear your conscience, you've, you've engaged in sinful behaviors uh, so many times over, and you're tempting to push that, that hot iron upon your conscience so that all the nerve endings of your conscience are utterly dead. And if somebody comes along and they, they prick the nerves a bit, it can be very alarming to those that are attempting such a way of life. And if you are in that situation, I'm here to tell you that whenever uh, a preacher of the good news of Christ or whenever any other Christian tries to prick those somewhat deadened nerves, it's out of love that they're speaking to you. They're trying to awaken you to your fearful condition and to call you to find safety and refuge eternally in Christ. 
It is an act of love to prick those deadened nerves and to call people to reality and truth. So what happened to Stephen? Well, this was not, as you can see, a proper trial. Whatever attempts there had been to have a proper trial proceeding soon dissolved because of the anger of the mob. This was a mob killing. And that's what you get with uncontrolled rage and anger. You don't get orderly uh, behavior and justice. You get people that are mad and run after other people to harm them. This was not the use of capital punishment in accord with God's law. Stephen had not committed blasphemy. He was not guilty of, of such a thing. But this lawless mob ran after Stephen and began to stone him without any permission from any authority that was then present. It was just what they all did out of uncontrolled anger and malice. And so as all of this is happening to Stephen, how does he react now? He's, he's seen the glory of God, so he's not fearful. He doesn't back down. He, he's taking all of this as God's will. But not only does he not become fearful and back down, he is actually now active in asking God to forgive those that are killing him. Verses 59 through 60, he says two words. He directs his his words to the Lord Jesus to receive his spirit. Verse 59, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Verse 60, then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And so we've seen, as I mentioned, all these graces coming together. We've seen power. We've seen the sound mind. And we see now, especially, we see Stephen's love for those that are hurting him, those that are killing him. And you see Stephen acting as Christ acted in two ways. Just as Jesus Christ upon the cross had said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now Stephen says, Lord Jesus Receive my spirit. And Jesus had prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now Stephen says also, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Do not lay it to their charge. Stephen was like his Lord and Savior. He was filled with a heart of love for those that hated him. And it is only the power of God working within us that can enable us to love people that are killing us. It's already hard for those that slander us and, and hate us and don't talk to us again. And that's, that's a different kind of, of level. But when they're, they're killing you, you need the power of God if you will love. Jesus had said in the Sermon on the Mount, Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. And so Stephen fulfilled every word of our Lord's instruction in Matthew 5. But it would be, naturally speaking, the very hardest moment to love. That would be, naturally speaking, where your love runs out if it is not strengthened by the power of God. 
Now, Stephen's death and his martyrdom in many ways might remind the reader of the Old Testament of the death of another prophet. It's very similar to what happened to another prophet in the Old Testament. And he has just been speaking about how they killed prophets, right? That was the end of his message. And they, they proceed to do exactly what he had charged them with doing. But back in Second Chronicles 24, the prophet Zechariah was calling the people of God to repentance in that day. And in Second Chronicles 24, 20 through 22, you'll notice some of the similarities between Stephen's situation and Zechariah's situation. It says this in Second Chronicles 24, The Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, who stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he also has forsaken you. So they conspired against him, and at the command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness which Jehoiada his father had done to him, but killed his son, and as he died, he said, The Lord, look on it. And repay. Now, the similarities here, of course, one of the similarities is both Stephen and Zechariah are acting as prophets of God. They're rebuking the people of God. They're saying, You need to repent. They were both stoned to death, but you'll notice their words are a bit different. Zechariah says, The Lord look on it and repay. Stephen says, Lord, do not charge them. With this sin. Zechariah prays that God would avenge. Stephen prays that God would forgive. Zechariah prays for justice. Stephen prays for mercy. Now, what should we think about that difference? Well, my purpose in drawing that out is not to simplistically say that all the people in the Old Testament were just about justice and not mercy, and then you get to the New Testament and there's all about mercy. That's not my point, as there is much of uh, mercy in the Old Testament. My point is rather that Stephen is in some ways excelling Zechariah and acting in accord with the instructions of his Lord Jesus to desire mercy for those that are killing him. And it's not that praying for justice is inappropriate or sinful or wrong. In fact, the Psalms are filled with such calls for justice. There is a place to pray for both justice and mercy. But what it does, I think, reveal is that the heart of Stephen, which has been worked within by the work of God, is a heart of such love that he desires that mercy would triumph over judgment in the matter of his persecutors. Now, as we read the text about Stephen, sometimes people say, well, Stephen had such a forgiving heart. And I do believe that it's true Stephen had a forgiving heart toward his persecutors, but let us not misread the text. Stephen doesn't say, I forgive you. He asks that God would not lay the sin to their charge. Those are are different things. It is, of course, good to have a forgiving spirit towards your persecutors and to be willing and ready to grant that forgiveness, even when it is not asked for, I believe. We should be of a forgiving spirit. I think there's good biblical grounds for that. But that's not specifically what Stephen is saying here in his prayer. He's not saying, I forgive you all. He is saying, Lord, do not lay this sin to their charge. 
Now, the reason that that's important to note is that we need to understand the difference between us granting forgiveness to someone and God granting forgiveness to someone. When we forgive someone else, we release the right to revenge on our own part. We don't hold that sin against the person any longer. We will not allow it to disrupt our relationship. We cancel that debt that we would otherwise hold. And we say, I forgive you. But you must recognize that when you forgive someone, that does not change their relationship with God directly. They, they have a, a broken relationship that sin causes between them and God, and they need that restored through faith in Christ and repentance. That has to happen if they don't yet have that. Or, or of course, either way, as Christians, we are to confess our sins to the Lord as well as to those that we hurt. And the reason that this is important is that Stephen is recognizing what is more needful than his own forgiveness of them. It would, it's good for Stephen to say, I forgive you, but they need more than Stephen's forgiveness if they will not be condemned to eternal destruction for their sins. Stephen can't fix that for them. Stephen recognizes that what they need is God to save them. That's more needful than Stephen's own forgiveness. They need deliverance. They need salvation from their sins of killing, hatefully killing God's servants. And this reveals the heart of a faithful and loving witness of the Lord Jesus Christ, that a faithful witness is so compelled by the love of Christ, both Christ's love for them and Christ's love formed within them, that they desire the salvation of all and the destruction of none. And that is to be in accord with the heart of God, who himself says, I It is my wish or or my will that none should perish. And also in Ezekiel, the Lord speaks about, he does not take pleasure, take delight in the destruction of the wicked. This is the heart of the Lord that we then reflect, that we desire the destruction of none. We desire the salvation of all. And so even as we pray, if we think about the imprecatory psalms, we ask God to stop evildoers, to bring justice. We can also pray for mercy upon those who do such evil. This love should extend to those that would violently harm us. And we see another example in history of this in the case of Richard Wormbrand, the Romanian pastor, long imprisoned, long tortured by the communists during the Soviet Union period. And what God was doing within Richard Wormbrand and his other fellow Christians in this place was to form such a love within them that the power of the gospel would be made known. I mean, that's, of course, a remarkable testimony to the power of Christ to save and to transform if the people that you're attempting to torture and kill express love to you and desire your salvation. That's, that's how it was evidenced. Wormbrand, he records some of these interactions in, in prison, and, and the prison guards, they would be mystified by this. They couldn't make any sense of this because they did not know that same power in their lives at that point. One of them said to Richard Wormbrand, Mr. Wormbrand, he had not called me Mr. before, how is it that you love me? I would never love someone who put me in prison and beat me up. How can you fulfill such a commandment of Christ? Wormbrand said, I answered, I am not fulfilling a commandment by loving my enemies. Jesus has given me a new character, the main feature of which is love. 
Just as only water can flow out of a bottle of water and only milk out of a bottle of milk, so only love can flow out of a loving heart. And what Wormbrand was contrasting is he's saying it's not a mere command. Yes, Jesus gave this command. But he says, the reason I'm able to do this is not simply because Jesus commanded me to, but because I have been changed from within. And I've been given a loving heart. And that's the only explanation for why I can love you, which would otherwise be impossible. The love of Christ was formed within the hearts of Christ's disciples like Wormbrand, and it enables us to love the most unlovable people, those that hate you and harm you. And we should remember, isn't this exactly what God has done for us? We who were by nature wretched, sinful, and deserving of eternal judgment, yet what did God do for us? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Paul says, it's... it's not really likely or possible that someone would die for the ungodly. In fact, even a natural human would maybe dare to die for somebody that's good. But God shows his love for us in that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Pastor Wormbrandy, he went on to explain to Western Christians how they should pray for those in such situations. And he says... Western Christians can help us by praying for the persecutors that they may be saved. Such a prayer may seem naive. We prayed for the communists and then they tortured us the next day even worse than before the prayer. But the prayer of the Lord in Jerusalem was also naive. They crucified him after this prayer, but only a few days later they beat their breasts and 5,000 were converted in one day. So you think back to the prayer of Christ on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Was it fulfilled at all? Absolutely it was. We don't know how many heard the Pentecost sermon and were converted that were also at the crucifixion, but I think our Lord Jesus was praying for the people of Jerusalem who had rejected him, who had harmed him, and his prayer was answered with thousands converted. Was Stephen's prayer answered? Well, we don't know all the people on that day that had a hand in killing Stephen and how many of them did not have that sin laid to their charge. But we do know one name, don't we? He was mentioned twice in our passage. A young man named Saul. And in just two chapters, Saul will go from being a murdering Christ-hater to being a loving Christ lover who preaches the gospel and risks his own life for the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the power of prayer for you demonstrated in Stephen. So as we look at these contrasts, we've seen these dramatic contrasts. They're amazing contrasts. Filled with the Spirit versus filled with anger and malice. Filled with, with forgiveness and love versus filled with extreme hatred Seeing the glory of God versus total blindness and deafness. As we look at those contrasts, I I trust that there is one of these paths of life that seems very attractive and beautiful and desirable. And that is the life lived for the Lord Jesus Christ. That life lived filled with the Spirit. That life that consists in power and love and a sound mind. And so may it be that that we seek these things 
We ask God to bless us with these graces and then we seek their cultivation so that we might also be faithful witnesses whenever we have the opportunity to say, I follow Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we are thankful for the testimony that you have given to us of other faithful servants of the Lord. We're thankful for the work of Jesus and the work of the Spirit in the life of Stephen. And we're thankful that you have given us uh, the same blessings and inheritance to believe in Christ and to suffer for him and also given us the gift and the down payment of the Holy Spirit so that we might also have these same graces in our lives. And so I pray that you would banish all fearfulness from our hearts, you would give us courage and faith and love, and that we would be all the more ready and eager to tell others that we are the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.